and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. And I'm David Bax. Sorry, I was just doing my Tyler impression. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the listener doesn't know because I always edit it out. But before Tyler says hello every week for the past... How long have you been doing this? 14 almost, years? Almost 14 years. Almost, uh, every week, Tyler goes, hello. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it's so frustrating. Like when I, when I would, when I do more than one lesson, like at this point, it's, it, it's just me by myself and I go in and there'll be times when I, when I, uh, sort of lose my train of thought. So I cut and then I wait for a moment and then I start up again and having to put those two together. I just like, am I like about to die? Why am I taking such deep breaths? This is, and, and you'll hear like a, you'll hear me start to say something like, oh, and then it gets cut off because it's the next clip. And it just sounds like, uh, yeah, like I, I went to breathe and there was nowhere left. So yeah. But, uh, anyway, uh, now David, That's my favorite Harlan Ellison short story, by the way, <laughs> uh, that was, that was, that was really good. Well done. That, that surprised me and I'm excited. It put me in a good mood. Um, but before we uh, jump in and find out who the hell that was, I did want to tell everybody that uh, the book, the 101 uh, best movies of the 2010s. Battleship Pretension presents. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Battleship Pretension presents the 101 best movies of the 2010s. Uh, it is done it is in my possession. Literally, I was telling uh, our, our guest that um, I was Jen is is out of the out of the house right now. So I was putting my kids to bed, and uh, just as the, as they were starting to to doze off, sure enough, the UPS truck comes along and uh, and offloads seven big boxes of books. And, uh, and I'm very excited. And of course I then had to start all over again with my kids, but, uh, I was very excited. And so I will let everyone know that at this point, uh, obviously if you've pre-ordered the book, it's coming, it's on its way. I'm going to ship them out uh, probably tomorrow actually. Um, and, uh, for everyone else, if you haven't pre-ordered the pre-order option is over. Now you can just order it like a person, like a regular person, like a regular person. Um, yeah, and, uh, regular. You're regular. Um, but, uh, yeah, so just go to battleship pretension.com and click on the, uh, the, the graphic on the, on the left-hand side, and you can order the book for 1499 plus shipping, uh, in the U S only, but I will say this, I said it to our, our patrons earlier. Um, there have been some people internationally. The reason that we say U S only is because at the moment, um, the only way to get the book is for us to ship it and shipping internationally is exorbitant. And I'm looking for like a print, I'm looking into print on demand, which uh, would still be fairly costly for international uh, buyers, but uh, probably still, still uh, more feasible. So I'm looking into that, but it's probably not going to be for a while. I'm also looking into ebook, ebook options, but that'll be for a while. It won't be for a while. So if there have been some people that have said, we re I really want the book and I'm willing to pay the extra shipping, which is crazy to me. Uh, you know, uh, I appreciate that level of support and I'm, I appreciate your enthusiasm for the book. So what I'll say is if you are one of those people, uh, don't take my saying that you're crazy. Don't take that judgment to heart, go ahead and buy it. But, uh, you know, email me and we will work <laughs> out the additional, the additional, uh, shipping cost. Right. Um, and keep in mind. Yeah. yeah. 
if you can wait, we yes. are hoping to get the print on demand thing, which again, will still be a little bit more than what the people in, in North America are paying, but yeah. um, not as not that much more. Yeah. Uh, so, not but anyway, 40 bucks a book or whatever. So we're, we're very, we're very, proud of the book. I love the design. I, I love all, all everything that the contributors, um, well contributed and, uh, and yeah, so I'm very, you know, this is our first book ever in 14 years. And, uh, for myself, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it as, uh, Dr. Bankman says in uh, Ghostbusters. But anyway, just wanted to remind everybody of that. Uh, and, uh, then we, now we can get to our guest. Um, yeah, you, that's, you always, that, that's your go-to quote. I'm happy to be a part of it. Like Dr. Bankman says in Ghostbusters, because yes. no one ever has ever said that phrase. Everyone knows it's, it. It's it, the, the only thing that Dr. Bankman says in Ghostbusters. The cadence in my head is him saying, yeah. I love this plan. I'm happy. It's, it's, it is a, it's that Bill, Mur it's like, yeah. it's that Bill Murray when he's enthusiastic, where it's like, I think you're still being sarcastic. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so anytime I use that phrase, I can't help but think of his, cause it's a fairly mundane phrase, but to, in my mind, because it's so the, the cadence is so specific. It's like, well, I can't think of that. that that belongs to him now. So I guess I should I should quote that character. But uh, now, David, in the book, you and I uh, did the most write ups. Wait, do we, should I do? Uh, we have an ad to do. Oh, first, that's right. right? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to tell you about tweaked audio. I think we just had an ad, by the way, as well. Uh, but anyway, yes, that's on. true. Uh, TweakedAudio.com. Uh, TweakedAudio.com uh, is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, I'm using them uh, right now, and I use them every day. Uh, uh, today, um, I was listening to... Uh, what should I talk about? Cause I'm trying not to talk about metal all the time, but, um, I guess I was listening to the new song driver's license by Olivia Rodrigo, but I don't know anything to say about this song. That won't make me sound fucking ancient. It's, uh, the, well, that's okay. it's a song you, that shot. It, it debuted at number one on the billboard charts because it like came up through TikTok, which is a, like how songs get popular now. Sure. Um, it's um it makes me feel like an old man to listen to it and be like okay this is like some sort of like shiny emo pop i've i've heard this before there's some nice turns of phrase in here but this i like it's sort of like okay when i was in elementary school i lost my fucking shit over nirvana sure. right but that's also because I was in elementary school. I didn't know about Husker Du. I didn't know about the replacements. You know what I mean? This sound, this just like a sound that came out of nowhere yeah. as far as I was concerned. And so I try to keep that in mind when something like this Olivia Rodrigo song becomes huge. Uh, is, is that like, this is a, like, she's like a Disney channel star, her fans. Uh, maybe this is their, one of the first uh, uh, pop artists they've known about. So she's, the song's good. It's it's. Uh, I'm mostly baffled by its uh, enormous success. But uh, sound great at my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. 
If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Tyler? Yes. You were saying about the book that the third, you and I wrote the most because we are the founders of Battleship Retention. But Battleship Retention, for all intents and purposes, has a third member by this point. Mm -hmm. Um uh, uh, he's, he, he, he contributed the second most, or I guess third most, third most. us as a tie. Well, I wrote one more than you, but that's fine. Did you? I wrote 26. Oh, okay. So you wrote the most, I wrote the second yeah. most. Yeah. The third most entries in the book were written by Battleship Pretension Editor, Large Scott and I. Welcome back to the show, Scott. Hello. Always good to be here. Have you heard Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay old man <laughs> yeah what do you get out of here this is a podcast for youngsters <laughs> for gifted youngsters i don't know what tiktoks you're watching scott um apparently the wrong ones <laughs> um scott have you seen the book yet no i have not well i've seen it you know the pictures on the okay. facebook and the so forth i've not physically held such a thing whoa yeah, look at that there it right is there. yeah that's super fun yeah, it's uh, pretty neat. But this isn't a Patreon when I learn video. Um, well, I'm just showing Scott, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't want to spend too much time ogling the book. I'm trying to create some theater of the mind here, David. Exactly, yeah. Okay. I'm, uh, I don't know. I don't know how great a job you're doing. Uh, <laughs> it didn't work on me. Um, so, uh, no, what we're actually here to do uh, is not to describe the book page by page to you. We're not here to talk about the book at all. We're here to talk about our, it's our annual kickoff to our end of year coverage, except it's six weeks late. It's about uh, time. Normally the first episode, uh, uh, this is for at least for the past few years, the first episode we do in the new year is Scott and I's top 10 of the previous year, but with everything sort of being shifted back and us tending to follow backwards from the Oscar ceremony with our interview coverage, we're starting today, the day of recording, February 11th, 2021, to talk about Scott's favorite films of the year 2020, the year that was. Yeah, it's been weird uh, actually going into the new year, still thinking about the previous one. I don't know how you guys do it every year. I, they're keeping new movies coming out. And I'm like, well, I can't watch those yet. I still got oh, this old yeah. year. Usually, you know. I compartmentalize. By- Usually, yeah, you get used both. to it. Pretty good for you, I guess. But how weird is it that there are movies like obviously you're? I'm assuming you're keeping your list to actual 2020 yes. movies. But uh, neither of you was on the episode last week when when Angie and I were talking about how weird it is for a movie like Judas and the Black Messiah to premiere at Sundance and then be eligible for the Oscars that are about to happen. Yeah, I can't <laughs> like get you, past that. Like uh, uh, in most years, the Oscar nominations come out like before Sundance or around the time of Sundance. Um, but, but uh, it's, it's weird to, to have seen, to have movies on my 2021 list already that, w- that are also being talked about in the awards conversation. I mean, I guess that's nice in some ways. Cause it cuts down on the number of people who are like, this will be next year's Oscar front runner, which oh, like, but I, I see, I love is. that shit, but okay. I love that shit. 
I love big. I love it because it never it it usually isn't. But every time, every once in a while, people are right about something about Minari or calling by your name that premieres at Sundance that uh, has a lot of Oscar buzz and and, and or at least awards buzz and keeps. Yeah, it I, I, the only one that feels like it really went all the way, like in the past five six years, was uh, Manchester by the Sea. As far as yeah. like something premiered at Sundance and then eventually won an award. Yeah, it won two awards. Well, yeah, I'm just saying at least one. Yes, sure, sure. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's definitely. And as far as look, people, they're not tuning in to find out about our draft, but uh, oh but it God. definitely I hope, is. I mean, you don't want to know you would <laughs> if you knew how poorly I was doing this year, you would unsubscribe from this podcast. You're like, this guy does not know what he's talking about. I've done poorly in the past. This is a complete flame out. But it's I didn't think you made bad picks uh, well, going out. And of the, also, it's just the way it goes. The nature that we're getting really granular and like inside baseball yeah. now, but the nature of this award season means that. So sometimes we do, we do these swaps where if we have a pick on our team and it's not performing, you can swap it out for something that's still unclaimed. Yeah. I just, because tingled. of this stupid award season, I've swapped out two things that now if I'd kept them, I'd have more points. Because, but no one was talking about Andrew Day for months and months and months. And then like, suddenly she gets like a Golden Globe nom and like a Critics' Choice nom or something. Well, you had to expect that because it wasn't, the movie wasn't even coming out until February or something. But I guess I, I kind of gave up on having Andrew Day when, uh, was it Paramount? Or whoever had it was basically like, we're not releasing this in theaters. This is going straight to Hulu. It was like, uh, that's a vote of no confidence. Ah, uh, uh, this one is never going to get me any words. And so I uh, switched it out and suddenly Andrew Day's racking up awards, or at least nominations. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that uh, I... Years ago, I had uh, Steve Carell for Best Actor for Foxcatcher. This is something I've said before. And the first few Critics Awards came out, and this was back before I realized how much of a disparity there can be between critics and industry. And the like critics weren't really nominating him for anything. And so like, I just like cut and run and went with someone else that was doing okay critically at the time, but got nothing as far as industry, which was uh, Oscar Isaac for a most violent year. And sure enough, then the, then the industry kicks in and Steve Carell's getting nominated right and left. And if I had kept him, I would have won that year. Mm. Uh, it was very frustrating. Well, I remember and, the, uh, the time I learned really learned about the difference between critics awards and industry awards is that like at the halfway point I was leading, I think in 2015, 2016, uh, I think because I had Rooney Mara for Carol was the main thing was like, mm. like I was racking up points and I was, and then, but suddenly I was like alluding to his character suddenly realizing I was walking over thin air because the, yeah. <laughs> then the, the industry awards came out and everyone forgot about Rooney Mara and I just like completely stalled out and everyone passed me. Yeah. And like right now, so Scott is, is winning by a fairly wide margin right now, about 35, 40 points. Yeah. Uh, sounds right. But I am and, worried about the same thing happening to me because I got a lot of critics friendly stuff. Yeah. And that's, and what's interesting is like, cause I'm, I'm behind about 40 points behind you, which to me feels insurmountable, but then those golden globes and those SAG nominations came out and, and not so much golden globes, but like the SAG nominations came out and I was like, Oh yeah, you do have like, I, I genuinely thought like, as always happens, just like with Willem Dafoe and the Florida project, I thought Paul Racy was like a powerhouse, this unstoppable juggernaut for supporting actor, but no, 
we can't, we don't have any room for him with Jared Leto in there uh, for the SAG awards. And so I'm, I, I'm very interested to see how the next, uh, next couple months are going to go from a draft standpoint and other things. Tyler, I was going to save this for the movie journal, which has already come out, but we haven't recorded yet. Uh, Have you seen the little things? No. Oh, okay. Oh, I know where it takes place. I'm, I'm aware. Jared Leto visits the strip club at victory in Bellingham, not once, but twice, which is so close to where like right down the street from where you used to live. And right across the street from that, uh, from movie that, theater. uh, $2 movie, second, theater. Second movie theater, but yeah. it's supposed to take place in Bakersfield. Yes. Uh, no, it takes place in Los Angeles. Oh, does it? Oh, at the beginning. So okay. Denzel Washington's character is a Kern County deputy, like got it. Okay. Sheriff's deputy. He, co- he comes to Los Angeles on some procedural work and gets tied up in a murder investigation. I see. Okay. So yes, got it. no, it takes place in Los Angeles in 1990 for no reason. Yeah. I imagine there's a lot of things in that movie for no reason, based on what I've heard. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. What is here and now is Scott's top 10. But also in the past, because it's dealing with last year. What's up? Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't really have a way of preamble. Obviously, last year was terrible for everyone. It's just the worst year ever. And uh, I'm not going to pretend like... I did okay. <laughs> got a couple kids. kids. got yeah, a couple be, kids out of it. Be one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actively am trying not to, to do that. But uh, it's also tough because it's just like, it's like, yeah, it was a really bad year but it was good for me so you know what maybe i'll just keep my mouth shut for a while honestly and personally i've had worse years i just you know sure to be generous exactly to the people exactly of course i, mean, I don't think I, I don't think i i spent a lot of time counting my blessings that my year was much better than it could have been because i stayed sure. employed i live with someone that i love i have a sure. comfortable place i also used once i got over the first few months of just non-stop anxiety i actually used the time to like we did some work on the house i've like have started my workout and re- regime and like my uh health and skincare regime i'm like i've made the best of it but i also think it might 2020 might still be the worst year of my adult life you've never looked better david that's what i say i know what counts but thank you. <laughs> i mean the zoom to look know, blurriness is good. doing a lot but you know <laughs> nevertheless you do look jaundiced but uh but you look all right um anyway uh all to say that uh the year's movies i'm not going to pretend like it was the strongest year for movies ever but i feel like we do the same conversation every year where people who don't see a lot of movies say it was a weak year and people who see a lot of movies say a lot of good movies came out um and i feel like that's kind of the same thing this year only more pronounced because it was just harder to keep up i mean i get it um you know, it's not, it's hard to know what's out there. It's hard to find the motivation to watch things when they're just available all the time on demand or whatever. Um, and I definitely saw fewer movies last year than I have seen as far as new releases go in over a decade easily. Uh, usually I do like between 140 and 170. Last year I did exactly 99. I tried to make it to 100 and couldn't even talk myself into that. Um, but I want to know what's the 2020 said. movie you couldn't talk yourself into watching. <laughs> um, I started, but did not finish both Tesla and American Utopia. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, I've, I would think you'd like American Utopia. I was digging it so far. I just, yeah. uh, then I just didn't finish it. I know you're not a Michael Almereta fan. So yeah, I, that was t- Tesla is not the movie to win over non Michael Almereta fans. No, it's very much a Michael Almereta movie. Proving a tough road to hoe. I made about halfway. You know, there's a certain 2020 documentary that you could have watched. Who's to say I didn't? Oh, fair enough. Oh, yeah. All right. 
I was going to say, and with that, let's get to your worst movie of 2020. Yeah. Uh, so this is a little awkward, guys, but I know we oh, have the director boy. on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, no, I actually had trouble thinking of the worst movie I saw this year because you really want the worst to be like the movie you saw where within the first like 20 minutes or so, you get that kind of like, ah, oh, shit feeling where you can tell it's yeah. going to go wrong and it just keeps going wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. And the only one I could really come up with for that was uh, George Clooney's Midnight Sky. And I believe David called out when talked about in the movie journal, the exact moment, which is when the little kid shows up. And we find out she can't talk. <sighs> and right away, I was like, this is this is not going to go well for all, any of yeah. us. Yeah. Um, well, and I'll reiterate what I said in the journal. Let's not forget, the movie starts with the words three weeks after the incident on screen, yeah, which is I a was, pretty big red flag. I was less put off by that than you were. Um, it was definitely a little like, okay, not so sure about that. But by the time the little kid showed up, that was when I really knew that it was going to get bad. And it's just like, even that bad setup proves to be the establishment for a horrible creative decision that they reveal at the end that I won't get into, but it's just the most pointless twist you can imagine. And, uh, doesn't, and if they just told the more movie straight, there's a gr good story in there. George Clooney's, uh, trying to do his, uh, Leo DiCaprio thing, get real cold, real miserable. <laughs> um, could have all ended up pretty well. There's some exciting sequences, but it just felt like a bad merging of, uh, why can't it? No, the Revenant. Yeah. It felt like a bad merging of the Revenant and gravity with, uh, not that those are particularly good movies to begin with, but with neither of those movies, cleverness, the Gravenant, the Gravenant as it will now be known. You're welcome. So yeah, that's my worst. Um, okay. overrated. I had plenty to choose from, but I tried not to pick on some of the smaller movies that had enough trouble finding footing this year amidst uh, the pandemic and people's attention spans and all that. So I went with the largest movie that uh, nevertheless I felt was overrated. And that was uh, Disney and Pixar's soul. Um, I think technically it's peak doctor and Kemp powers soul. Um, weirdly it's credited as director to Pete doctor and co-director to Kemp powers. Cause he didn't direct enough, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I am not into most uh, contemporary Pixar stuff, and this was not convincing me otherwise. I, I just think the animation style isn't that exciting. Um, and I thought the whole first half of just ex constantly explaining what it was about was uh, ex exasperating. And I really thought Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey are perfect examples of why you shouldn't cast celebrities in these things. They're just, every line reading is so overexcited and so... Mm overpronounced and not grounded in character. And it just feels like they are just trying to mug for the recording booth kind of thing. Um, yeah, I was, I was not into it. So I haven't seen the the film yet, but I I'm curious, like in your view, like what, where does contemporary Pixar start? Probably after toy story three. Although like, I mean, I'm not too big on Wally -E and up and Ratatouille, but those are still pretty solid. Mm -hmm. after toy story three it gets dicey i think the only one i really liked was brave um but i, I mean i didn't see cars three i didn't see finding dory did you see um, monsters university which i wanted to see liking. monsters university that's, i liked it a lot more than that's i thought all right I yeah that's an okay one i i missed coco which i think um was the one that people are really excited about i know everyone loves inside out i saw that hated it um but i i'll probably catch up with coco at some point just when they do you guys remember when it came out and they were playing that like half hour 
short beforehand, uh, the frozen short. Yeah. Attached uh-huh. to the movie. Yeah. That was the moment that I was like, there's no way I'm going to show up an hour before the movie actually starts <laughs> just to go see Coco, which I'm not even sure I'll like. Yeah. Um, so that was that ultimately turned me off, but I'll catch up with it someday. I could see you liking Coco. Yeah. It looks very visually dazzling at the very least. I think I'm weirdly, I'm generally with you about contemporary Pixar, except that I do really like Inside Out. Um, partially because, as I like to remind people at every chance, it's a hockey movie. Sure. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, Soul, I, I can't remember what I said in the movie journal. I think I said it was pretty, like, batting 500 middle of the road Pixar stuff. So you would agree that it is overrated then, because people are very high on it. Yeah, I think my problem this year, and I'll have to, like, recalibrate um uh, i feel like i've i have a worse sense of what the consensus of certain movies is oh sure this year i think i've been spending less time on twitter is maybe just a part of it um so um yeah i guess i i, I thinking about it like oh yeah i guess soul is like racking up a lot of awards so people uh think uh highly of it but um I don't know. I guess people are talking about it like it's one of the best Pixar movies of the. Yeah, the weekend it premiered, people were very, very into it. That's all. I'm a big fan of Onward, and I wasn't expecting to be, but I liked it a lot. Yeah, 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 I didn't see that one. Um, For underrated, I'm going with a trio of movies that are kind of connected by a common theme, and these, to be fair, uh, might not even be good movies. I dug them, but uh, open to the opposing side and there are three studio movies directed by women uh the turning birds of prey and wonder woman 1984 um all of which were kind of dismissed or outright disparaged some for some reasons that are probably pretty valid i, I do think the racial politics in wonder woman 1984 pretty dicey um even if it's a small part of the movie and for some reasons that i think were complete bullshit i mean most of the case against birds of prey is just that it's too feminine as far as i can tell um and i think more and more the real thing is that they just don't conform to what has been established for these kind of big studio release movies in these kind of genres but a lot of those things were established over decades and decades and decades by male tastes so what's i think what we're seeing is kind of a a radical shift in priorities as women take the helm more and more and get more and more creative power and that's probably going to have some few, a few rough spots along the way. I think that's what we're experiencing, but I think mm. it's also really exciting in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Birds of Prey and Wonder Woman and The Turning that are is really different and really strange and really interesting that um, I just haven't seen from male directors with given these kind of resources. So uh, I definitely am excited by what they point to. And I was really into each of these movies for their kind of uh, freshness. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I haven't seen The Turning, but I'm a big fan of both of the uh, superhero movies uh, you mentioned. Especially, I think Birds of Prey has really grown. I liked it when I saw it. And the more I think about it, the more I, the more I like it. I didn't care yeah, for same. it much when I saw it, but it's still, there's still, visually, I think it's great. And, and I like a lot of those performances. Unfortunately, I think the best performance is Ewan McGregor, who is having more fun than any actor has ever had in any movie ever. Well, partially because he's been so dead on screen for so long. Sure. It's like, wow, he's really into it. Yeah. 
cool. Probably okay. Down with Love was like the last like really vibrant performance of his. I don't. I'd say. Yeah, I still need to see that. Um, oh man, you'd love oh, it. Oh, I, I do. Yeah, that's a that's a Scott type movie. I know. I, can't, I, I was like. 16 or 17 when it came out and i was sure. like, kind of interested but like it's hard to get a group of teenage friends together to go see down with love <laughs> right. sure. it's a homage to 60s sex comedies guys <laughs> um what the hell is i gonna say though oh uh, i liked him in uh, ghost rider that was the last movie that i was really into him oh, oh man. ghost writer Writer. <laughs> yeah i heard ghost writer and i was like yeah I mean, I hated that every moment of that movie. Did I block him out? Okay, go, Ghost Rider. No. I've got it. Yes. Polanski, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as... <laughs> that, no, that's a good transition. <laughs> yeah. Maybe let's not work the word baby in the same sentence as Polanski. Well, sure. We all have regrets this year, I'm sure. <laughs> um, for honorable mentions, uh, I just want to quickly run through five films that... Um, kind of in various ways upset the status quo in a year that uh, was rife for that kind of thing. Um, I guess this first one doesn't really, although it's a very aggressively weird movie. Uh, Abel Ferrara's Tommaso, which I still, I logged in Letterboxd noting that I'm unsure whether or not I want to click the heart icon, and I'm still not sure if I really liked it, but Willem Dafoe undoubtedly gives to me the performance of the year. Um, and I pitched this idea to David, and I still think we should do this podcast sometime, the idea of actors as auteurs and Oh, the yeah. performance here completely makes that kind of case. Like he is inseparable from everything the movie is doing, not only from what he's doing within it, but like the whole way the movie is defined uh, really comes as much from him as it does Ferrar. And despite the fact that it's like almost strictly autobiographical about Ferrar's like life at that point. Um, but Defoe really uh, makes it his own in a very powerful way. I'm so excited about that topic. I wish we could throw today's out the window. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Mine's just, I know, I know. <laughs> no, we should, we'll do it soon. Uh, yeah. Tommaso rocks. Um, uh, as, as with last week with Angie, um, uh, listeners, I'm occasionally going to chime in so that Scott has the chance to take a breather or a drink of water. I do appreciate that. Uh, the other is a movie I just saw last night. It's called build the wall. It's just Swanberg's latest movie. Uh, the first, I think he's made since he did that, series easy for netflix and this one he just it's an hour long he just made and threw it up on vimeo and youtube it's just there you can log on and watch it anyone can watch it um and it's very much a return to like old school joe swanberg of like low-grade tech uh shitty sound quality and a fair deal of erections if you're into that kind of thing um and i did that weirdly i know again you guys weren't on the podcast last week. We talked about erections last week on the podcast as well. Uh, pro or con? Well, I uh, talked about a movie at Sundance that has a lot of erections in it. And I said, just said, you know, if that's something that scares you off. Sure. sure. No, no, that there's a lot of erections. And of course, um, I'm talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's what got Daniel Kaluuya that uh, nomination. <laughs> yeah, it still has a, a stronger structure, I'd say, than his earlier Mumblecore things, if that was your initial problem with him. If your problem was erections, then uh, you're shit out of luck, I'm afraid. Uh, third one's Hopper Wells, which I talked about on the AFI episode. I don't need to go into too much detail on, but it still doesn't have distribution, and it really should. It's a great movie. Um, fourth up, uh, Sylvie's Love, which is... Um, very old fashioned kind of romance movie. Some people have gotten confused and uh, chastised it for not being a proper melodrama because it's not a proper melodrama. It's a straight up 50s romance um, just starring black people instead. Um, 
which is really kind of a role that they, they didn't get to have in the 50s. And director Eugene Ash was kind of inspired by looking through these old photos of his grandparents. You know, he, the legacy he'd inherited from the 50s was of nonstop, like, racial discrimination and terror and stuff. But he just found all these old photos of them just, like, happy and having these carefree days. He's like, I, I want to make a movie about that. And so he did. And it's really sweet and really lovely. Um, you can watch it now on Amazon. Then the fifth is uh, Natalie Erica James's debut film, Relic. And this was the closest film to make my top 10 that didn't quite make it. Um, it's a horror movie about three women, three generations, a grandmother, mother, and a granddaughter, uh, played by Robin Nevin, Emily Mortimer, and Bella Heathcote. And it's the rare kind of female-fronted horror movie that isn't about either sex or raising a child. It's about kind of reaching the middle stage of your life and the responsibilities that come with it and uh, then looking at your parents aging and eventually dying and how terrifying that is. And it's just, a, I think they're the only three cast members in the movie. There may be a couple other people, but it's really interior and the production design is amazing and really, really freaky and unnerving. I think that one's on various streaming platforms, VOD, that kind of thing. Which brings us into the official, the top, official 10. top 10. Yeah. All um, those other movies fell way short. Way short, except for Relic, which felt just outside. Fair enough. Um, yeah, so number 10. So some days, you know, I like to think of myself as a pretty uh, pretentious guy. I like to really lean into the pretension of the podcast and uh, embrace the artsy-fartsy stuff. But some days, it's a Saturday, and you're just practically crying because of a basketball movie. And that is The Way Back by Gavin O'Connor, mm. um, which I had missed in theaters. I'd wanted to see because I'm a big Ben Affleck fan. And so I caught up with it when it hit HBO Max many months later on a Saturday morning and it just hit completely my vibe and I was extremely into it as far as like just having me in its grips, getting me to that emotional place, uh, nothing else this year could touch it. Hmm. And um, as listeners might be familiar, Ben Affleck plays an alcoholic. He's very little left to live for tonight, except for going home to a big old fridge of beer and just slowly downing it. There's a great sequence early on where he opens his fridge and it's filled with dozens of cans of beer. And you're like, well, this guy's stocked for a couple of nights and just one by one goes through each one that's in the fridge and just mm -hmm. gets drunker and drunker with nobody around him to kind of catch him. And that's like as good of a night as he has to live for until he gets a call out of nowhere to um, come coach the high school basketball team that he once led to a championship. And kind of what the first two thirds are, kind of a very familiar, you know, down and out guy, rising through the challenge, um, connecting with the kids and really like make, finding a way to make a difference. And it follows that path. And I would have been very happy if it stuck with that path the whole way, because definitely the emotional high point is, you know, when they win the big game and it all like, all the rewards start paying off, but then it takes a left turn around there and the arc kind of shifts and it kind of, sh I don't really want to get into too much detail, but it really centers on um, kind of the great lesson that we, anyone who played youth sports learned sooner or later, which is that phrase, you know, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. And it really becomes immaterial whether or not they win or lose. It's I'm not going to say whether or not they eventually do or how far the movie gets into their basketball season, but the point really comes home um, as far as the dramatic structure of the movie that whatever difference, you know, whatever number of wins they rack up is not uh, going to solve Affleck's alcoholism. Um, he 
has to figure that out for himself and has to navigate that in other ways and has to find rewards beyond um, leading kids to a championship. And it really navigates it in a very moving way. And I was just really impressed with it. Um, Affleck is as good as he's ever been here. I know there's been a lot of reading into it of like, oh, well, he sure has the experience and, you know, I'm not going to cast aspersions. Maybe that's why, maybe that's not. Um, he just has a real kind of grounded sense of being like a little bit out of breath, kind of has this defensiveness that springs to his eyes whenever people start to suspect that he's, you know, had a few too many or uh, coming off one or whatever else. Um, he just has a, such an innate sense of that character and is so well-rounded. And yeah, I completely loved it. That's so exciting. Uh, when I first saw the the trailer for it, I, it because of course it it's, to, to whoever cut it, uh, to their credit, they didn't overplay the inspirational part, nor did they overplay like the really depressing uh, Manchester by the Sea, Lonesome Jim. Oh, weird. Both uh, Casey Affleck um, aspects. And so as a result, I was intrigued. They're like, how are they going to bring this together without dipping too far into one or the other? And it's like, it is possible uh and i was really excited to see i mean i i missed it but i definitely want to every time i remember that it came out i was like oh i sh i should prioritize that because it definitely looks like my kind of thing as well if balanced right and it sounds like it sounds like it is yeah it really finds that balance really well uh, much better than i was expecting i was expecting it just to be like well basketball solves everyone's problems why wouldn't it and you know i love basketball and all but there are limits well i didn't uh this is another example of me being tuned out on discourse or whatever this year. I didn't even know it was a sports movie. I'm glad to hear that Gavin O'Connor is back to sports movies after, after miracle and, and warrior. Uh, he's, he's good at, uh, I'm assuming the basketball games themselves are well staged because he is, his, his proven himself to be very good at staging sports within yeah. movies. Um, even though he took a break from it for a few years, there, making the accountant. And before that taking over from Lynn Ramsey on Jane got a gun. That's right. I forgot he did that. Um, oh yeah. The, the basketball games are really well staged and he also has a good feel for like how shitty a lot of Catholic high school basketball stadiums are and kind of the <laughs> various levels where you can see, you know, how rich the alumni are kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so they do a really good job with the production design as well there. All right. Uh, number nine, another one that I revisited just a couple of days ago, just to make sure it should make the list. And indeed uh, lovers rock deserves to be on anyone's list. Um, Steve McQueen's one of his entries in the small act series. Shamefully, I've not gotten through all of them. Um, I've liked the ones I saw, but Lover's Rock is definitely the standout for me. And so it seems for most. Um, I definitely don't want to undersell that it is first and foremost an absolute vibe. Um, just a great groove all around. It, the music's great. The dancing's a blast to watch. The cinematography really captures it in a really exciting way. It's actually shot, I looked this up today, by the same guy who shot Skate Kitchen a couple of years ago. I don't know if either of you guys saw that, but it was a really cool skateboarding movie that kind of shot skateboarding in kind of a way I hadn't seen before. It got really like on the ground and like uh, just took on different perspectives and different ways you could hold modern cameras to kind of elevate things. Skate Kitchen is what led to the series Betty on HBO, right? Oh, it's I didn't same, know that. It's uh, There's a series on, Be on HBO six episodes so far called Betty about female, about young women skateboarding in New York city. And I think it's created by the same person who made Skate Kitchen. That would make sense. That's a cool movie, though, Skate Kitchen. Um, but yeah, it's kind of the same approach here where like there's he just photographs dancing in a different way than I've seen before, which is very focused on like hands and uh, kind of middle body movements. You know, there's not you don't really see a lot of feet. Um, 
there's not like a lot of really wide shots of all the groups together. It's very much about like the intimacy of uh, everyone dancing together. But in addition to that, like that was kind of what I heard about it up front. There's just like 70 minutes of people dancing. And that's true to an extent, but it's also really canny and perceptive about small ways that kind of major issues intrude on life. There's like, it touches on hot button stuff in really kind of glancing ways. You know, there's one part where there's a guy trying to get into the party who's maybe a little aggressive, but then they hear a police siren coming. It's like, well, we can't have this aggression on the street because as soon as the police see that happening, they're going to come bust up this party. They're going to, you know, uh, rough us up. You know, it's going to take a turn for the worse. So they have to drag that guy in. And it's just a quick, you know, two second bit that um, says a lot about kind of the ways that uh, black culture has to compartmentalize itself and kind of hide its small bits of joy. And um, yeah, the, there's another part where the woman who's the lead character um, tries to chase her friend down the street and kind of runs this group of white guys just hanging out. And that's another example of like, there's potential for violence just right there when she's trying to get down the street, but it's just a small little bit gets into that gets into rape culture. And then there's further themes, just like family struggles and kind of everyday things that we all deal with. Um, but it's all kind of backgrounded to this dance party and not in a way that like de diminishes from that party, but just kind of contextualizes it and gives it more texture than uh, maybe you'd expect right away. And yeah, just, Flat out, it's just such a sweet, energetic, and celebratory movie. And when you think of like what an ensemble can do as like a unit that kind of breathes and moves together, this is a really incredible ensemble. And there, a lot of them, you know, are only really there to dance. They don't really have any characters to play, but they really add to the, kind of the texture and feel of the movie. And it's it's a real blast. Yeah, I absolutely loved it too. I'll uh, save my thoughts on it for some time in the next couple months. I think. Fair enough. All right. Uh, number eight is Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks. Um, I'm a longtime Sofia Coppola fan, as many of us are, of course. Um, I, you know, I was 17 when Lost in Translation came out. Perfect age for a movie to change your life. And uh, it's one of those movies that did. And this, aside from the fact of the Bill Murray of it all, definitely has the same sort of flavor. It has more humor than she's had in any of her movies since then. Um, but it also has a real kind of driving force uh, behind it. Just kind of a, a, enough of a plot to kind of urge it along. Um, as listeners may know, I have a definite taste for these kind of simple stories where nothing much happens, but it's just about people kind of figuring things out that are shot really well. And it is beautifully shot by Philippe Lesore, who also shot uh, The Beguiled and Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster. Mm. Um, and it's really just about Rashida Jones and Bill Murray kind of reconnecting through this sort of arch narrative of Rashida Jones slightly suspecting Bill Murray, really suspecting that her husband is uh, cheating on her and them kind of going through a, a kind of thin man adventure to catch him in the act. Um, and Bill Murray has such a great way of kind of urging her along throughout the movie and always kind of getting her to do all these things she doesn't really want to do. And in addition to Murray just being so damn charming all the time, um, he has a real kind of sense of what this character might be hiding through his own humor and the way that he pauses between like lines, like Rashida Jones has all these parts, but she starts to call him out for things he's done in the past and he'll kind of brush them off with a joke. But then when she comes up with something that really lands and really hurts and really makes a difference, he still comes up with a joke, but there's just a little bit longer where he's trying to figure it out. And the space that he and Sofia Coppola craft between those moments really defines the character in a really interesting way. You know, there's never really a moment where he kind of comes out and apologizes for all the hurt he's caused over the years and all that. 
but they kind of reach the understanding that I think a lot of us have to with our parents eventually, where we just look at each other and be like, this is what it is. You know, we'll move forward as best we can. And it's a really lovely bit of uh, filmmaking that I think uh, kind of gets undersold. It seems simple on the surface, but Sophia Coppola has such a great sense of economy and how much you can do with little moments. I mean, the opening alone where she starts out at uh, Rashida Jones and her husband, Marlon Wayne's wedding and just cuts between them sitting at a table to them jumping into, of course, it's a Sophia Coppola movie of overly ostentatious swimming pool. And then immediately cuts to their home life of them picking up toys. And with that, you've kind of established like the immediacy of their relationships and she brings that approach to every scene. You know, there's a character played by Jenny Slate, who's in the movie for, I timed it the last time I watched it, like a minute and a half total. But she creates this whole world for uh, Rashida Jones's social life um, in that time. And yeah, it's just a, a really lovely, beautifully made movie. Sounds like a good performance under 15 minutes to me. <laughs> I've got her on my list. All right. I still haven't watched that one, but uh, I was 17 when uh, The Virgin Suicides was released in theaters in the U.S. at least. There you go. We've all been 17 before. Uh, number seven. Oh, that, I've been meaning to say where, where these movies are at. So The Way Back was, is on HBO Max now and also on VOD. Lover's Rock is on Amazon and On the Rocks is on Apple Plus, which, you know, they offer a free trial. Just do that. That's what I do. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing that, actually. That's, that's very helpful. For sure. Uh, this next movie is on the streaming service that we've all decided to subscribe to, which is, of course, Netflix. Um, that is Charlie Coffin's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And I've been a huge Coffin fan forever. Um, and so it's no surprise to me that his latest movie is uh, equally as masterful as anything that he's written or directed in the intervening years. Um, this is kind of overtly about a young couple played by Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons who are going home to visit uh, Jesse Plemons' uh, family, his mom and dad, have a meal with them and just kind of for her first time meeting the family. But as we learn in the opening narration, she is indeed thinking of ending things. She's thinking of breaking up with them at any moment. And so she's not that invested in making a good impression. And as one expects from a Charlie Kaufman movie, it, things just get weirder and stranger and starts to feel like they're maybe trapped there and maybe they never left the place they're from and maybe they don't exist and who's to say um i think it does have a very clear narrative through line and just based on conversations with friends and various reviews i read i think we all kind of agree on what it's really about and what's really going on but what's remarkable about that is that it really doesn't matter the central like feeling of the film doesn't rely on um complete understanding of it. It really gets through kind of these feelings of loneliness and desperation and regret without really clarifying what is uh, strictly happening within the film. And that's to me always been Coffin's great gift. And I think this is one of his better efforts in that regard that he can develop something that's completely surreal and strange that has some logic behind it that he doesn't entirely explicate, but which uh, carries with it a great deal of feeling and as with most coffee movies, an element I always forget that he's great at incorporating the way we incorporate movies into our own lives, the way we like quote movies kind of offhand or try to pose ourselves like characters we've seen before, or especially if you've been involved in productions, maybe quote lines from plays you've performed years ago. And they just these way these things, the way that art really always stays with you is kind of a through line in his films and um, very, uh, very much present here. And almost completely the emotional heft of it by the end. 
Um, in addition to Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons, who two Jesse's spelled differently though, um, Tony Collette and David Thewlis play his parents and they're both as great as they've ever been. It was photographed by the same guy who shot Cold War. Um, hmm. So it's just as beautiful as that might suggest. And it's edited by Kaufman's, uh, I said longtime editor. He also edited um, Synecdoche in New York and it has that same sort of like slippery feeling of just kind of, things are just kind of gradually chipping, slipping away and reality starts to make less and less sense, but it all kind of has this uh, consistent momentum to it. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely uh, uh, gorgeous. Um, and uh, uh, it uh, shook me in many ways that I don't want to get into right now. Um, Cause I wanna, I, there's, and there's other things I want to say about it that would be spoilery, I guess would be the, the 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 word for it that i won't say uh but i will point out that among all the other things that show that kaufman is good at the movie is also very funny yes um it's also very unsettling um in in many ways but it's very funny and david thewlis uh is his his argument how do i know a painting is supposed to be sad if there's not a person in the painting looking sad (laughs) it's like very funny but also to people who uh spend a lot of time thinking about and appreciating and loving art that's a very frustratingly common it's not always put into words like that, but it's a very frustratingly common uh, way of uh, uh, superficial way of engaging with art that uh, so made me uh, laugh and made me kind of uh, frustrated with the character as well. Yeah. Kaufman has a lot of those laughs that are either also sad or like also kind of frightening. Like I love the way that Tony Collette's waving to them at the start from inside the house and she just can't stop waving, um, which is a very like energetic mom thing to do, but also like it goes on so long. It's kind of creepy too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what number was that number? That was was number seven. Seven. Okay. Number six is also a little bit surreal and a little bit, uh, I guess creepy in its own way. Um, Hong Sang Su's yourself and yours, which I've talked about a billion times in the show. Um, I know we're all sick of yourself and yours. We got to get through the yearly Hong Sang Su. No, what I'm saying is, you've completely gone off the rails at this point. Like I understand a movie, like if it had premiered at a festival in 2019, but I saw yourself and yours four and a half years ago, almost. So did I. Uh, So my rule for these kind of things, for those who are curious, my rule is as long as a movie is released uh, within five years of its premiere date, then that still counts for this year. Like if it's actual like commercial release to the public in the U.S. Yes, because my top ten list is distributed stuff only. Um, I got some festival faves, you know, logged in the back for next year. But uh, I only go by distributors. So So just to be just so the listeners know, so they're not lost looking. Where's the yourself and yours from 2020? This is a movie that premiered. uh, I don't know what festival premiered at, but premiered in 2016, but was only released. Uh, to U.S. audience, US, to you know, uh, regular U.S. audiences, I guess, in the year 2020. That is correct. Uh, so you can watch it on. There's some digital cinema platforms. If you go to Cinema Guild, uh, their website, they'll link you to them. Or you, I think you can watch it on Mubi right now as well. Um, so there are ways now to see it, which wasn't true years ago, which is why it couldn't be on any other top 10 list, though it deserves to be because it uh, rocks. Um, so it's interesting now to look at it and kind of contextualize in the films Hong's made since then he's made probably five films, five or six films since then. And 
uh, he had come off a run at the time of these very like highly structured films with repeating scenes and incidents, um, which really came to a head with Hill of Freedom and Right Now Wrong Then, which are kind of like maddening in their structure. Um, good movies, but very maddening. And Yourself and Yours has an element of that. It's about a man who's, uh, his friend tells him that he saw this man's girlfriend out, she had a wild night out, and he seems to be presenting in a way that like maybe she'd be a little suspicious of her. And he confronts her about that and she completely denies it and breaks up with him. And in the interviewing, intervening weeks, he starts to see her everywhere or maybe it's duplicates of her. And there's either she's multiplying or there's a twin situation or it's hard to say because it's a slippery, surreal Hong Sang Soo movie. But it's really very much about like the regret of miscommunication in relationships and the regret of letting go of a relationship too soon. And I've seen it a few times and it's really, really an effective uh, film. And I, I would say still, you know, it's up either that or Hotel by the River is uh, his best for me. Um, and again, I, I'm, I feel like a broken record because I just said this about thinking, I'm thinking of ending things. But if I worked at a video store and I had to decide what category to put yourself and yours in other than i guess it would be foreign um i would put it in under comedy uh, like the way that scott i think described it doesn't make it sound very funny but uh, uh, a lot of it is very uh, uh uh there's 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 a certain broadness i think to uh the 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 setups and the framing and the use of zoom lenses is yeah. done in some way, uh, ways that are not, they're not like, uh, those, uh, uh, poking prodding Robert Altman zooms. It, they're kind of comedic zooms. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think the movie is as good as, as hotel by the river or on the beach and Night alone, but, um, yeah, I liked it too, I guess. <laughs> I also saw, I, I, I always bring this up because I saw it. I took the day off work because I had a bunch of like sick days. But I took the day <laughs> off work during AFI Fest and they showed yourself and yours. It, it was its second screening. It was like a Monday at like 11 a.m. or noon. And they showed it at the Egyptian because I think they just like we have the Egyptian. We have some we need some place to put the second screening of this Hong Sang Soo movie. I've never been to a screening of the Egyptian that was so underattended like a monday yeah, i'm sure 11 30 in the morning for a hong sang soo movie it was there there were there were like a dozen of us that's almost like, like too big a screen for hong sang soo um all right number five getting back into the studio fair lee Wan l's the invisible man which i talked about on kind of the halftime episode we did back in june or july or whenever the hell that was it was um, july Judges, judges, July. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, I can't believe like, it. Everything still feels like it's the same. So, uh, uh, but yes, that was seven months or whatever. Indeed. Seven months ago. All right. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Lee Wanell's second film as director uh, with Elizabeth Moss in the lead. And as far as like those great Friday night studio films, which are so few and far between, I, I, mean, I think only Gone Girl from the past 10 years really stands up to the level the Invisible Man is working at. Um, just the marriage between what one else doing with the camera and the sound design and what Elizabeth Moss is doing on screen is really, really incredible and really, really a high wire act. And, you know, there's that um, Ernst Lubitsch quote, um, which I tried to find attributed, but I'll just believe it's true because it sounds good, um, where he said, there's a thousand ways to point the camera, but really only one. And it's something, you know, you don't always see directors go with, they'll shoot a lot of coverage and kind of piece it together piece by piece. But here, 
every shot has a real intention behind it. And, you know, it's not the right shot because it um, is symmetrical or because it goes on for a really long time. Although one L uses both really expertly here. It's just, yeah. you can just feel it. It's just the right shot because it's the right shot. And sometimes it has a very clear distinction. And sometimes it just, it, it just feels strange and perfect in ways you can't quite put your finger on. And, you know, moment for moment, I couldn't get over how well this movie was made and how thrilling it is at every point and how insanely good Elizabeth Moss is and how vanity free she is in her gradual and eventual complete dissension into madness um, over being terrorized by her uh, now invisible ex and aggressive ex-boyfriend. Yeah, it's, it is currently in my top 10 as well. And though I, still have a number of movies to see. I, I can't imagine it falling out. Like it's just, it is just so, so expertly made. And it's, it's interesting what you were talking about in, in regards to just the, the just instinctive way that he knows how to place the camera, not to suggest he didn't put a great deal of thought into it, but like, how can something be intuitive and meticulous at the exact same time? That's exactly, that's how the film feels is, because you, you've got these two different perspectives. You have the perspective of a person who's becoming increasingly unhinged and another person who is very, very meticulous uh, in their plans and in their actions. And you put those two together and it's a wonderful, because the characters are often in the same frame at the same time, even if we don't know it. And it, yeah. And it's a wonderful drama, a wonderful horror, a wonderful suspense. It's just like, it's I'd say it's damn near perfect, actually. Yeah. Not a thing I say lightly. And the whole conceit just speaks to like trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder so well of yeah. like even before he could be in the frame, he probably he, he is in the sense because he's taking up space in her mind. Exactly. Yes. And so there are these shots early on where he'll just pan to nothing in the room and whether or not he's in there is kind of immaterial because in yeah. her mind, she, he's still taking up that space. Yeah. And that uh, is currently on HBO Max and VOD, should listeners want to see it. So number four, speaking of invisible abusers, um, we have Kitty Green's The Assistant. Mm. Uh, this is a movie, I saw it theatrically, because um, it came out in like January or something. Uh, and I, I, I liked it, but I wasn't like completely bowled over by it. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think it has a really bad title. Um, I hate just kind of like non-descriptive, like, Oh, the assistant. Cause it feels like she's supposed to define like all assistants everywhere. And like, this is just the, what an assistant is, is defined by this film. And I, I thought it was, kind we of, all have our own pet peeves. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you like this title setup or what do you mean? I just, uh, I was just thinking about how I know that I'm not by the way, but I um, am skeptical of titles that start with words that end in ing. Oh, sure. 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 You know what I mean? And I, I don't like, as we've talked about on here, like whenever somebody titles their movie American, some, whatever that yeah. is, it's just like, man, that's funny. So we honestly do all have our, oh, yeah. oh, absolutely. I mean, how can you watch this movie, many movies and not build up some things? Um, and then, yeah, so it has this whole conceit. So uh, Julie Garner stars as the titular assistant um, who has just started. It's like five weeks in or so in this job working as an assistant to a big, powerful movie producer who's, you know, uh, has 
his fair share of skeletons in the closet and the whole company is kind of covering for his indiscretions and um, his harassment issues and all these other uh, kind of derelictions of duty and abuses of power and everything. Um, I think the movie was over promoted when it came out as being like the Harvey, the behind the scenes of the Harvey Weinstein story, because, you know, I, I don't know all the details there and I don't think it's fair to tag that with the movie in part because it overly sensationalizes what is actually a very common occurrence, which is, you know, the way that people in power abuse and exploit their power and the way people below them feel exploited by that. And so I thought when I first saw it that it kind of copped out by keeping him off screen. Uh, it's kind of a way to like make him more than he is, more of a boogeyman. But the more I thought about it throughout the year and then watching it again, that really does speak to the way, the effect that those kind of bosses have in those environments. And I've worked in offices like this. I certainly know the feeling of like, if you see them, it kind of diminishes the power that they hold over the employees because it humanizes them and to the employees and the whole system that covers up for them, they have decided that he is more than human or else he wouldn't be worth all the effort. And it really is about um, that whole system propping him up. And it's much more about the way that people excuse that behavior than the way that behavior actually happens. You know, you see all the little machinations that make it possible for someone to retain that kind of power and the excuses people make all over the place, up and down the food chain, regardless of gender, regardless of anything in order to justify their presence there. And in a very subtle and very canny ways, it kind of makes uh, Julie Garner's character culpable in this whole um, operation. You know, even it, there's a fine scene where she, tr you know, kind of starts to try to report it to HR and HR it, as HR tends to be is more interested in defending the uh, company than it is in really helping the employee and uh, doesn't give her any relief and just gives her every reason to not go with it. But the way that Julie Garner plays that scene, you get the sense that she's, not purely reporting it out of the goodness of her heart she or not really even reporting it just out of self-defense um she seems a little um ignored by the whole operation she seems she seems jealous of the advantages that this new girl at work is getting because she's more favored uh there's a really interesting kind of subtext to the whole scene and julie garner's character kind of not in any overt way, but she gradually takes on kind of the aggression that she sees around her and that she sees as making other people successful. It just takes place over the course of one day. And uh, Kitty Green, who wrote and directed the film, is very smart about not developing too much into that. Um, you just get little snip, little snapshots, little snippets of pieces that you have to add up and put together and kind of get a sense of this place and the sense of her trajectory within it that um, might not, you know, might not change the course of things at her company and she might just become another cog in this machine. It's very uh, undecided what her ultimate fate will be, but it gets so much of the texture of the, those kind of places, right. Um, from the kind of drab interiors to the kind of way people behave as though they're trying to be helpful, but they don't really want to put themselves too much on the line. Um, it's just a really well thought out and well uh, imagined movie. I haven't seen it, but Julia Garner is the shit. Um, if you, I would recommend anyone watch the Dirty John, the first Dirty John miniseries with, with uh, Connie Britton and Eric Bana and Julia Garner and Juno Temple. Um, uh, and apparently there's, I don't know if it's real or not, but there are rumors that Julia Garner is going to be playing Madonna in a Madonna biopic. Oh, I can uh, totally see that. Be super cool. Um, and I know a lot of people know her from Ozark, which I have not seen. When I think of Ozark, I think of the, 
onion headline netflix algorithm suggests viewer who liked ozark might like pretty much anything (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh, i mean the certainly people really like the show and it's and there's a lot to like about it specifically jason bateman and laura linney but she i think is really one of the highlights i don't like I watched the first season, I think one episode of the second season. And I was like, I think I, I think I get this and I'm good. Um, but, uh, but she definitely like, there's a, I think this is, it's the thing that got her uh, recognized. And I'd say understandably. So um, she, I'm not sure if I'd say the show is worth watching just to see her, especially because there are other good performances, but, uh, but she is definitely a highlight of the show. Cool. And this, I just looked it up. I had forgotten this. This this phantom rumored Madonna biopic uh, is said to be uh, penned by Diablo Cody. I think huh. I'm not sure. We all hated her for a while, and then I feel like there's been like a lot of revisionism. Um, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I like uh, Jennifer's body, and I like her script for young adult. I don't think Jason Reitman's direction does the script any favors, but yeah, I mean. I, young adult is the one I think that. Uh, that that turned me uh, around on her. I never saw Jennifer's body. I I ought to, um, but yeah, I didn't like Juno, obviously. Yeah, obviously. And I didn't really like. What was this last one they did together? Sir, the T. Tolly. Tolly didn't really like that. Yeah, I didn't see that one. Um, cool. So that's on Hulu and various VOD platforms. Number three, is... I think it's on Canopy as well. By the way, uh, really? the assistant, I believe so. Well, good for Canopy. Yeah. They're getting uh, some high-profile movies these days. They really are. Uh, yeah. I just from, watched yeah. Miss Juneteenth on Canopy. Oh, that's a good movie. And I saw that. Uh, I think Beanpole is on there, and yeah, it's Canopy is turning into a really nice little uh, <laughs> streaming service. Thank you. Brought library. to you by yeah, yeah. your yeah. local library. Um, cool. So number three is Andrew On's Driveways. I thought I heard a about to speak noise i just had i just guessed because i also love this movie yeah it's uh it's pretty great um it's practically everything i want from american independent movies that we so rarely get just is simple stories about people with commitments and bills to pay and just trying to make it through the next thing in life um it is about a woman played by hong chow and her name's kathy Uh, she's tidying up her late sister's house so she can sell it um only to find upon arriving that her sister was a hoarder who didn't pay her electric bills. And they really tease out the details, uh, the writers and director Andrew on um, really tease out the details in a really subtle and effective way where we kind of gradually find out that they weren't all that close and she, being suddenly confronted with what her how her sister had been living over the final years of her life um, proves uh, kind of quietly devastating. It's a really effective portrait of kind of adult relationships and the way people become estranged from each other, which then ties into what her son is going through. Um, you know, he's just there. He doesn't really have anything to do. She has to work remotely all day and then clean out the house kind of when she, whenever she has time. He, this, they don't really live in the town, so he has no friends there. And so he just kind of gradually befriends uh, the next door neighbor, played by Brian Dennehy, who's a Korean War veteran and a widower who's nearing the last act of his own life and is also kind of isolated and doesn't have a lot going for himself um but it is very happy to look after this kid and the relationship they form is so moving and so uh well wrought without being it kind of i guess you could say it kind of tips over in a sentimentality at the very end but by that point it's so restrained all of that that it earns brian and his final speech so well and that 
speech he gives is uh, so overwhelming and so moving. And I really wish that Denny he had caught on more in kind of the conversation of the great performances of the year, because it really was an incredible kind of capper on his career. Also, interestingly, the characters weren't intended, uh, Hong Chow's and her sons, they weren't intended to be Asian American in the script, uh, which is by two white writers, but somewhere along the way, they brought in Andrew on, on it and he just suggested it. And all the right people said yes in order to make that happen. Um, not only does it kind of bring it closer to himself based on what I've read in interviews, just kind of his own experience, uh, as he notes, is a way to kind of physicalize their feelings as outsiders. You know, they're cleaning out this house in the middle of Michigan, not exactly a hub for the Asian American community and everyone around them is white and they're naturally going to look at them as outsiders just by virtue of them not being from the city, but also just their minority status uh, very much puts everyone like at a slight remove. Um, and it's an interesting way to kind of texture the film and also just gives Hong Chao a great role. Finally, she's not playing the weirdest person you ever met. Um, although I've always <laughs> liked her in those roles, um, but she's really, really good here. Yeah. There's not much else I have to, to, to add, um, uh, except that I like the, um, I like the slice of life uh, scenes of Brian Dennehy and his, his buddies at the, uh, I guess like VFW or whatever, but um, yeah, uh, one where of veterans go by, to play bingo. Yeah, and one of the one of them is played by the great Jerry Adler. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, and then, and then they actually have uh, there's a stand I've seen they have their own scene at the grocery store together, which is also a very uh, uh, affecting scene. Oh yeah, and before kind of Cody's allowed to hang out with Brian Danny all day, he's shipped to various like neighbors' kids' houses, and as someone who's often shipped to neighbors kids houses uh after school and stuff growing up uh it really gets the feeling of just being in a seemingly stranger's house with just the shittiest kids you've ever met in your life um <laughs> that's a nice bit of texture that i don't often see in coming of age movies yeah and uh christine ebersole plays the uh the the mom of the neighbor uh kids and yeah. she's an actress that i that i like uh familiar recently to uh viewers of search party as porsche's mom Oh, I, I need, still need to catch up with Search Party. Oh, yeah. Well, just got renewed for a fifth season, so... I know. You can find it to catch up on. Yeah. All right. Number two uh, is Hirokazu Koreeda's The Truth. Um, this is his first film made outside of Japan, and I think really, at least of the handful of films of his I've seen, I haven't caught up with some of his earlier work, but this is one of his best, I think. It helps that it stars, you know, some of my favorite actors, Julia Binoche, Ethan Hawke, and Catherine Deneuve. Uh, Binoche and Deneuve, despite being two of the greatest French actresses of all time, have never been in a movie together. And it almost seems like they've been waiting for parts this good or a relationship this good to play. Um, she plays, much like Deneuve herself, a legendary French actress. Um, her characters just published her memoir and Julia Binoche plays her daughter and Ethan Hawke, who plays Binoche's husband, come to visit to kind of celebrate. And drive her to and from the set of the film she's working on and all these elements kind of just bring her into bring Deneuve into confrontation with how she's aged and how close she is to the end of both her career and her life and how her diminished status that she's worked so hard to attain um, maybe won't uh, really matter as she nears the end of her life you know she's has this kind of uneasy relationship with her daughter and doesn't really have the emotional resources I guess to fortify it and the way they, the two of them play that relationship is really sharp. I mean, they're both just very uh, cunning and observant actors. And a lot of the script is apparently uh, improv not quite improvised, but sort of built around the actors themselves and kind of 
how they built the characters on set and kind of adjusted day to day to accommodate that. And you can tell that Coretta has a real uh, insight into uh, both of their kind of personas and what they're capable of. It was also shot by Eric Gautier, who's a great French cinematographer, definitely has an eye for this kind of sentimental stuff. He shot Summer Hours and A Christmas Tale, these great kind of blown out images that lend a sort of surreal shimmering quality to all the scenes. And everyone in the cast is just so, so good. Um, has a, a kind of deep supporting cast of people who are probably familiar to people who watch a lot of French movies and who I certainly can't name, but uh, I was really very moved by this when I saw it at AFI Fest last year and then when I saw it again and it's on VOD and Showtime for anyone who wants to catch it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like this movie a lot too. The um, We should say the title, The Truth, probably refers to a lot of things, but it's also a bit ironic because uh Catherine Dude's character's uh memoir is full of lies <laughs> um which causes a lot of uh uh a lot of friction um I also love Ethan Hawke in it and I, I feel like I'm I am I still feel like an Ethan Hawke defender even though I think over the past five or so years like yeah, I think people have caught up people have caught up but I still feel like I want to defend uh defend him and I like how um given the kind of characters who really made his name in, in the nineties and like before sunrise and in reality bites and, and stuff like that, how um, good he is in this character, in this movie at playing a character who's usually at a disadvantage, usually like trying to catch up with the conversation. He's playing a very uh, person who's in a place where his insecurities are, uh, are on display uh, and can't be hidden because of the, um, the, his outsider status as the American um well, and especially the language barrier because he speaks yeah. like the tiniest bit of French of anyone who's probably married to a French person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's a really good good performance. Yeah, absolutely. All right, number one. We did it, guys. Got all the way to the top. Um, all right, well, uh, wait, did we say, where were the last couple viewable? Um, uh, the truth is on VOD and Showtime. Oh, driveway is same deal, VOD and Showtime. Okay. All yeah, right, Showtime. so now that's the buildup to... Number one, here so we I, go. The curtain I, falls. Go ahead. All right. Uh, <laughs> so I've, as far as I can tell, I, I can't remember if I've ever or when the last time I would have put a, a debut film as number one. And it's not that I'm opposed to debut films. It's just that, you know, it's rarely their best effort and they usually get better. And there's usually plenty of films by more experienced directors who are, you know, better at putting forward their vision and ideas and all that. Um, but it's a strange year for a lot of things. And why can't it be a strange year for this? So my number one is Shannon Murphy's baby teeth. Now there are a couple heavy hurdles to get past with in considering baby teeth and in considering whether to watch it. One of which bad title, it's called baby teeth. Very off putting. Uh, I understand. All one word too. Yes. I understand why you would not want to watch such a movie. Um, the other hurdle is its premise. It is about a 16-year-old upper-middle-class girl with cancer who falls in love with a 23-year-old drug addict. I get why that premise uh, sounds very boring and dull and not that exciting. And to boot, she has a father who is a psychiatrist who's kind of largely checked out of uh, raising his daughter and her mother who's maybe overly invested in raising her daughter, um, but her is kept a... Uh, on a heavy dose of pills via her psychiatrist's father. Um, so it has all these elements that are very like familiar indie tropes that are not that uh, inviting because they've been so worn to the ground by so many lesser films. 
But what this movie certainly has to start with is a great cast. Um, Eliza Scanlon, who is probably familiar to most of us from Little Women or those of us who saw the HBO series Sharp Objects. Um, she was really the highlight of that series. And she plays the lead, the girl in question. Um, her boyfriend is played by Toby Wallace, who I don't know anything about. I think he's kind of a newcomer and better known to the Australian stage scene for whatever that's worth. But her parents are paid, played by Ben Mendelsohn and Essie Davis, which is no one shade at the Australian theater. No, I'm just saying like <laughs> hard to develop an overseas rep based on that. Um, but her parents are played by Ben Mendelsohn and Essie Davis, which should count for something around here, I should think. Um, and the whole cast, she's a BP award winner. You're damn right. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, uh, not that anyone was necessarily missing me, but I had to mute myself for a while because the cat was making a lot of noise uh, outside my door. So, but I wanted to, I definitely wanted to chime in and re remind everybody that Essie Davis won Best Actress for the Babadook several years ago for uh, the BP Award. And don't worry, everyone, the BPs are still coming just later, like everything else. Hell yeah. Uh, the cat just wanted to chime in on the truth. Just really feeling, uh, wanted to support the Ethan Hawke love. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this is adapted from a play, but you'd really never know it. Unlike the vast majority of stage adaptations, it's not about like presenting the play just as is or doing sort of a theater plus where they take all the lines and just shut, set them in the shopping mall or whatever. It takes the central drama and reimagines it for the screen uh, while still retaining kind of the intimacy of the stage, um, which Shannon Murphy achieves by doing kind of a lot of interesting close-ups it really reminded me of kind of one car wide cinematography where there's kind of this wandering camera that keeps going closer and closer to the characters so that they're really kind of uh, you know practically right in our laps they're really right up in our faces and the actors are really inventive with what they do with the close-up um eliza scanlon in particular has a way of kind of playing to and with the camera that isn't like overly winky or uh cute or anything um but kind of draws you in closer to her experience of the scene and it, it's just really sharply written, very funny. The characters spend most of the film making the wrong decisions, which the film is, doesn't condemn them, but it's also not non-judgmental of them. The feeling is really like when you've uh, confessed that you've done something bad uh, to your parents, or your spouse, or someone who loves you, and having them kind of embrace you for it and uh, love you all the more for it, and just like draw, that draws you closer to them. The uh, mistakes they make, humanize them and add texture to them. They're not forgiven for those things. They're not condemned for those things. It's just the fact of this strange experience. They're having a strange point at their life and the way that uh, Mendelssohn and Essie Davis, the parents try to kind of give Eliza Scanlon room, but not too much room in this relationship that they very much disapprove of, but also um, they want her to have whatever she wants because she's going through this horrible ordeal. Um, and yeah, it's a tough film to really sell because I recognize that it has a lot of seemingly off-putting elements, but I didn't, I haven't seen some, especially in a debut film, something this funny and fresh and consistently inventive. I really didn't know what it was going to do aesthetically or dramatically from one moment to the next. It kept me always on my toes and it's a really, really strong film. It's on Hulu and VOD right now. All right. That's, that's very, uh, exciting. very exciting. A lot something of, uh, yeah, and a lot of good recommendations, and I, it's, I guess one of the, I don't mean to, I don't want to try and like cheer people up about an unfortunate year, but like, especially like from a theater going standpoint, like if you're like theaters being shut down and all that, but it's kind of neat that 
your entire top 10 is available right now. Yeah, uh, people sure. can, people can go and, and find it. It's not like there's some stuff that's still in theaters, but only in certain cities, like li- uh, listeners can go and watch all 10 of your favorite movies right now, if they wanted to. And that's, that's kind of exciting. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see the way that adjusts in the years to come whenever theaters become a thing again, uh, whether yeah. or not they'll keep uh, pushing things out and sort of a at-home platform. Yeah. But, uh, but no, that's, uh, I'm, I'm as always, like, uh, I've, there are a lot of movies I haven't seen this year, especially just having so little time. Uh, but, uh, they all sound very interesting to me and hopefully the listeners, uh, are interested as well. So thank you very much, Scott, as always. Thanks as always for having me. I'm glad my internet held out. It went down three times today. So it was only a matter of time before. Indeed. Yeah. Fellowship retention is charmed, blessed once again. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, uh, well, thank you for being here, Scott. Yeah. Thanks as always. Uh, let's see. You can find uh, me at battleshipretention.com. That's uh, you can find us, us at battleshipretention.com, um, where you can find reviews of plenty of the movies that uh, that Scott mentioned were reviewed by uh, one or both of us uh, at some point <laughs> over the course of. Uh, you have to go back quite a ways to find Scott's review of yourself and yours. Um, it's back there. <laughs> um, uh, this week on the website, I. Uh, uh, by the time you're hearing this, I believe I will have watched and reviewed the Mauritanian. Um, uh, we'll see how how Baby Yoda does on uh, uh, in the in the, hey. disapprove in the courtroom scenes. Um, uh, <laughs> all right, uh, I'm a uh, never have objections been so adorable. Yeah. <laughs> you can email me your objections to that joke at david at You can email Tyler at tyler at You can follow me, David, on Twitter at debutpretension. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at tylerpretension. Tyler, do you have anything to plug? Uh, I think I might've said this uh, a couple weeks ago when I was, when I was on, but uh, over at more than one lesson, uh, I did an episode with Will Ryan and Katie Lee, two veteran voice actors. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you like when you listen, it's one of those things. Like if you, when you listen, you'll be like, Whoa, wait, I know that voice and have known it for a long, long time. And uh, that's always fun for me as David, as you know, I'm a sucker for voice actors. I really yeah, enjoy talking to them. So, uh, so yeah, you can find that at more than one lesson.com. And obviously everybody uh, check out the book. Yeah. And Scott, where can people find you? Should you want them to? Yeah, you can find me, I guess. Why not? I'm out there uh, on Twitter at rail of tomorrow at letterboxd uh, battleship retention. When David's not reviewing everything, I'm sure eventually he'll let something go for the rest of us. <laughs> he's got, <a, laughs> he's got, he's got to crack sometime. I don't understand what I, what I like. I'm not really doing anything differently. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to navigate this any better than anybody else. No. Does. If you're happy, I'm happy. I'm just, uh, if the listeners I am miserable, are... but, uh, okay. terrific. Um, I'm glad it's working out for it's, you. It's working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, um, uh, it felt, it felt really bad when we were working on, on the book. Cause, uh, I, I was kind of the one tasked with emailing people being like, Hey, don't forget that your write-ups are, are due and blah, blah, blah. And then I felt bad emailing David. Cause like he's carrying the entire fucking website on his shoulders single-handedly. Uh, and it's just like, uh, excuse me, can you please get these in? Thank you. Well, not single-handedly, obviously. I suppose not. But, yeah, uh, as far as written stuff, 
I've oh, still got uh, my movie journals happening. Scott's yes. in the movie journal. Scott covered AFI, which I know at this point was four months ago, but uh, life is a blur. Yeah. Um, you can find his review of Hopper Wells, which was mentioned. Uh, That's true. Me, uh, at at BattleshipRetention.com. Plenty of fun stuff at BattleshipRetention.com. Mm-hmm. We're all having Absolutely. a good time. And exactly. a review of The Mauritanian, which is <laughs> a Kevin McDonald film. Uh, yeah, Kevin McDonald film. So I predict, I haven't watched it yet. I predict I will find it competent. So uh, what's the worst, if as far as bad titles, is Baby Teeth or The Mauritanian worse? I can at least pronounce Baby Teeth. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I, I'm it, with you. That's a word I can pronounce. My least, I think my, I still think my least favorite movie title of 2020, especially for a movie that I actually liked is still the 40 year old version. That's yes, bad. absolutely. Yeah. It really yeah, makes me down. angry. That also, I did not like that movie. <laughs> oh, stay tuned to the, uh, for the movie journal. Uh, was, oh, no, no, I, I guess it. people by this time, people will have already heard the movie oh, journal. Yeah. Yes. But, and uh, also I talked about 40 year old version of the movie journal two months ago. <laughs> I know, but I didn't. And now oh, I'm going oh, to get okay. to, yeah. Oh, I see. I see. I, I yeah. misunderstood what you were saying. So, yeah. but, uh, yeah. Oh, Scott. Now I, I mean, we have to, we have to end. So at some point in the near future, I would like to know your, your thoughts on 40 year old version, uh, for like what you didn't like about it and that kind of thing. So, All right. but anyway, in the meantime, thank you so much. Oh wait, no, this is David's, this is David's part. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 